Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his latest book called Mesquite, Gary Paul Nepan employs humor and contemplative reflection to convince us that we have never really glimpsed the essence of what he calls arboreality. Uh, he uh, takes on in this book a large, many-branched question. What does it mean to be a tree, or accordingly, to be in deep and intimate relationship with one? To answer the question, he doesn't disappear into a forest, but exposes himself to some of the most obscure, uh, hyper-arid terrain on the planet, the Sonoran and Chihuahuan deserts along the U.S.-Mexico border, where even the most ancient perennial plants are not tall and thin, but stunted and squat. There in the desert regions that cover more than a third of our continent, mesquite trees have become the staff of life, not just for indigenous cultures, but for myriad creatures, many of which respond to these nurse plants in wildly intelligent, symbiotic ways. The book is called Mesquite, an Arboreal Love Affair. Uh, Gary Paul Nepan has another book coming out soon called Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. I want to talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, Gary Paul Nepan, welcome back to the program. Well, it's great to be with you, Tom. Thank you for uh, engaging in this conversation about trees. Uh, so uh, before we jump into this, uh, I want to remind our listeners of some of your background. Very interesting. You're, you're from Indiana originally. I am from the Indiana Dunes on Lake Michigan, so I grew up in sand. You're up in sand, and you ended up with sand as, as well. What, what took you out to Arizona? Well, I uh, worked at the first Earth Day uh, as a 17-year-old uh, in Washington, D.C. in 1970, and immediately after that said, I need to see the wonders of the natural world before uh, uh, there are more threats to them. And so um, on my 18th birthday, I was camping in Canyonlands in Utah, and fell in love with the Southwest and have lived here ever since. Oh, the Canyonlands, very, yeah, very nice, beautiful, beautiful area. Uh, what, what did you think? You'd, you'd uh, grown up near the, the, the dunes of Indiana. Um, what did you think about the, when, you, when you hit the, the Southwest? I felt like I was coming back to some primordial home of my family and my culture. My uh, heritage is uh, Arab, uh, both uh, relatives that I'm still in touch with in Lebanon and Oman, but I can trace my roots back about 4,000 years to Yemen. And so uh, it seemed like some wonderful matchup when I finally saw true deserts and realized that they weren't impoverished places, but very rich places that we could learn a lot from. Your grandfather, I believe, was a farmer. A A farmer and fruit peddler and a sheep herder in, back in Lebanon, and then he became a fruit peddler when he came to the Indiana Dunes. Yeah. And then your, your father wasn't so much a farmer. You, you, you didn't so much learn uh, the farming from your grandfather, although I, I see you've written that you wished you had. Well, if uh, I had had more contact with my grandfather when he was a farmer, I probably wouldn't have made the horrendous mistakes <laughs> <laughs> that any uh, uh, sheep herder or fruit grower in Utah uh, has probably avoided making, maybe not, but uh, fortunately other people took me under their wing and showed me how to farm in the desert in a way that uh, ended up to be productive and mm. very instructive. Now, your Lebanese heritage, I think that uh, that, that has had, you've, you've made some connections to, to that in, uh, in, uh, in your studies and in, in your farming. 
Well, that's right. I am going to do a residency at the American University of Beirut this fall while I'm on sabbatical, but I've done work in Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, and Oman, and uh, greatly respect the traditional knowledge that um, both uh, um, Arab and Jewish farmers have uh, in the Middle East that helps them farm in the desert using less water than most of us use here in our deserts. Mm. Yeah, very important, that, isn't it? Uh, What would you say the desert can teach us about sustainability? Well, the richness of the desert comes in pulses. You can't take it for granted. It, It sort of sneaks up on you. You have a windfall of of uh, mesquite pod harvests or uh, or pinion nut harvests once every few years that can sustain you if you know how to respond immediately and take advantage of that. And so it means that we get out of the mindset that food will be easily and uniformly available to us uh, year-round without us making any effort, and we have to be more responsive to the environment to know when to take advantage of these bumper crops or mass crops, as they're called, with pinion nuts. Mm. And, and so if we're going to eat locally, I guess to go with the seasons, right? Go when it's available. We've tended to kind of smooth that out artificially by, by transporting food all over the place. That's right. And actually, one of the first uh, people who pointed that out was Henry David Thoreau, who said, uh, you know, listen to and eat with the seasons, and you'll be a lot happier. Uh, there's surprises each day. So this is something that I certainly didn't conjure up, that people have known for centuries, that there's a real uh, satisfaction out of being attentive to the season's bounty. Mm. I want to jump into uh, talking about uh, your, your book, Mesquite, which is uh, coming out soon. Um, you, uh, in the first chapter, you tell about an experience you had out in, in, in the desert. I wonder if you tell, tell us about that. Well, let's say at first that I'm kind of the protagonist of the story, but, uh, he has a few traits that I don't, uh, have. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I'm sort of using him to accentuate all my own flaws and, and uh, insecurities, not that I don't have any, but uh, I really had fun creating a character who uh, has been wounded out in the desert. He doesn't know what happened to him, but when he wakes up, he sees these branches of a mesquite tree above him and a placard in a national park that has a scientific name of a mesquite tree next to him. And people are trying to see if he's okay or not. And he has this odd sense that while he was asleep or in a coma or whatever had just happened to him, that he had begun a transformation, a metamorphosis, into becoming a tree. And uh, he he says something that struck me. He, he says he, he doesn't mind feeling rooted in, in place. He'd been drifting all around the world and and not really satisfied and not really making uh, deep connections except with his wife, who he still dearly loves. Uh, I jokingly say it's a menage a tree because he loves his wife and he loves mesquite trees, and she also loves mesquite trees. And it's there's a sensuality about all of that, not a sexuality with the tree or anything. But the point is that... that uh, 
he feels supported by his wife, but feels that there's still something missing in his life, and he realizes he's lived around all these other species and creatures his whole life without having a sense of what it was like to be inside their skin or their bark. Hmm. Uh, in fact, protagonist opens the book. You write, I am here to convince you that you may n- have never fully seen, smelled, heard, tasted, or been touched by a tree. In particular, I humbly submit that you and I have yet to fully fathom what a tree can be, or at least what a mesquite tree can be to all of us. Well, what is it about mesquite tree? Well, you know, there's sort of something that we neglect, although they're a tree that covers about two-fifths of our entire continent. So something so commonplace uh, is often neglected or disparaged. Uh, mesquite has even been called a weed and an invasive tree, where it is native to our continent, of, of course. But it uh, produces so many benefits to people and so many interactions with other uh, species that we have affection for that ecologists have called it called it a ecological and cultural keystone of the desert that from uh, southern Utah uh, near the border with Nevada where there's a little town called Mesquite down to Mexico City uh, Mesquite has been probably the most important wild food crop for over eight millennia um, uh, and this is uh, you know it's a, it's a desert tree, right? Uh, there's a scene, I think it says in the, in the book, a arborist, uh, a, a tree expert comes out from back east, um, is impressed with the desert, but uh, kind of looks down on the mesquite. Well, yeah, that was a friend from the Yale School of Forestry who said, I don't think I'm going to uh, win much favor back at Yale uh, when I tell them that every tree that we've uh, uh, made inquiries about is less than eight feet tall. So, you know, I mean, it's sort of like the mini Cooper of trees, if you mm-hmm. want to say that. It's it's um, doesn't look um, like it has a massive influence on the surrounding environment, but that's in part because most of its life, like most of our own, is underground. Uh, for mesquites, there's probably ten times more root biomass and above-ground branch and trunk biomass. So the true life of a mesquite is hidden beneath our feet. You have a chapter called Deep State. um, (laughs) um, (laughs) Not that deep state, the other one. (laughs) The the other one. We'll we'll try not to stray too much into politics. But um, So impressive uh, underground, I guess, in a desert climate, you'd have to have a very extensive root system. Most desert trees do have more uh, below-ground biomass and and length than above-ground, but mesquite is rather remarkable. There's a a mine shaft uh, not far from where I'm sitting at this moment uh, in a border county in Arizona where they found uh, mesquite roots going down 160 to 175 Feet deep along the mine shaft, and and that's extraordinary by any measure. It may be the deepest tree root found anywhere in the world, but it's not just the depth that matters. Uh, uh, 
efforts to try to uh, measure the total weight of mesquite trees and to see how many microbes grow uh, in symbiosis with the roots of mesquite trees uh, has opened up this whole other world to us just within the last decade. The symbiosis, is that uh, is there more of that in the desert? Or is that important? Uh, or did, I guess it happens all, all over the world. Well, that's a great question, and it's actually something that I'm working on uh, in a long meditation on the nature of desert nature. And we used to think that the desert was all about competition for scarce resources like water. And now what ecologists have found is that there's a greater number of mutualistic relationships, what we call symbiosis uh, in the narrow sense of a one-on-one exclusive dependence, but there's all kinds of things that ecologists call facilitated relationships and mutualistic relationships, and there are probably a higher percentage of those in deserts than in any other ecosystem. Hmm. The protagonist, at one point, it's early in the book, says uh, he he is going to or wants to apprentice himself to a tree, in this case, the mesquite tree. That's right, and this is something I've done uh, off and on over years, where I, I'm sort of a character actor who has to be an understudy to whatever I'm writing about. So when I wrote Gathering the Desert, uh, one the John Burroughs Medal for Nature Writing when I was just a a little pup. I actually lived in the shadow of each of the plants that I wrote about and ate their fruits or seeds and used their wood uh, for fuel or for shelter. And um, it's simply the way I get to know um, other organisms of trying to put myself in in, uh, their shoes or their bark, so to speak. Hmm. What uh, and and so you've apprenticed yourself to the mesquite. You've uh, studied the mesquite extensively. What uh, I guess on a personal level, what uh, what did you come away with with uh, spending time with the mesquite? I I'm reminded of a friend, uh, Harley Shaw, who studied mountain lions for years, and late in his life he said, "You know, I've." Uh, uh, measured everything you can measure about a mountain lion, but I've never uh, seen the soul of a lion. And after years of doing technical studies on mesquite, I finally felt the same thing, and I think that's what prompted me to have the protagonist, someone who sort of felt he was broken and a failure, because he, he didn't fully understand the world. And so I wanted to to go from the technical studies to really understanding what we might call the intelligence, the emotional and ecological intelligence of mesquite trees, because it's fuzzy sets. It's a set of um, fuzzy relationships of where a mesquite tree begins and ends and where its enormous bee community begins or ends, or where its nitrogen-fixing nodules and mycorrhizal fungi begins or ends, and the relationship between mesquites and phenopeplas and mistletoe are also uh, relationships that are fuzzy sets, not uh, solitary or separate entities um, interacting in some 
manner that is rational to humans. They, their boundaries uh, are soft and and amorphous rather than sharp. The uh, the mesquite apparently is uh, famous for, for being self healing, uh, self healing properties, and then I, I guess their medicines come from mesquite. That's right. So the very uh, substances that mesquite trees use on themselves when they suffer a wound, these uh, um, very uh, potent gums that sort of weep from their wounds, uh, like uh, the stigmata of uh, St. Francis of Assisi uh, wept from his hands and feet. Um, Those are the substances that Native Americans of over 50 cultures from southern Utah down to central Mexico have used um, for their own healing. And uh, there's literally 150 to 200 documented medicinal uses of mesquite. It's really a major player in the pharmacopoeia of indigenous and Hispanic uh, uh, peoples of the Southwest and has been so for centuries. Hmm. Uh, Food from mesquite? Oh, boy. Uh, This is going through a a revival that has almost uh, uh, geometric uh, uh, growth right now. In Tucson, Arizona, where uh, my office is at the Desert Lab on Tumamak Hill, uh, within 10 miles of there, you can probably get 50 different mesquite products. You can get mesquite-flavored beer, mesquite-roasted coffee, uh, uh, mesquite-smoked whiskey, um, uh, mesquite flour in uh, breads and in um, empanadas and in uh, tortillas. And the interesting thing is that uh, my own technical studies with Australian nutritionists has shown that mesquite is one of the best foods that someone suffering from adult-onset diabetes can uh, take daily to control their blood sugars and increase their um, insulin production and their uh, pancreatic function. So again, like many things that we know, uh, many keystone foods from around the world that are important to cultures, mesquite was both a food and medicine simultaneously. Mm. And that's, uh, if, if you go back in culture, you can learn these things, I, I suppose, right? Uh, uh, but if you don't, if, if, if you don't dive into it, uh, and I guess this would go back to going local, whether you're in the local food movement, but, uh, but the, that interaction between culture and, uh, and, and botany, culture and, and, and the area. That's right. I mean, I've been blessed, really uh, fortunate that, uh, Indigenous people in both Mexico and the U.S. Southwest have welcomed me into their homes and, and fields and forests for for decades, allowed me to work beside them while we harvest mesquite pods and, and uh, uh, harvest mesquite gum and roast the pods and grind them. And every year down at a little cabin we have on the Gulf of California, uh, among the Siri Indian community, uh, we bring out a, a, a mesquite uh, grinding mill, uh, about a 600-pound hammer mill, 
that pounds the pods into a flower that's very similar to carob flower or chestnut flower. And so it's sort of a pastry flower uh, in the sense that a, a baker would uh, classify it. But uh, it makes marvelous tortillas and atoles and pinoles, uh, recipes that have been used for literally thousands of years have had mesquite as one of the major ingredients and that has not died out at all in the borderlands and may have in other parts of mesquite's range but from uh, Coahuila and Durango, Mexico all the way over to where we are on the Arizona Sonora border where I'm sitting today uh, mesquite is still alive and well in diets. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the borderlands. This is, you know, to, without getting into politics, there's the the, the, the the culture, the cultures, including the food cultures, straddles the border. That's right. I, I mean, the, I live in Patagonia, Arizona, and up until 1850, it was part of Mexico, and the founding families of this uh, little town of 800 that I uh, participate in um, are still here, and they came here from other parts of Sonora over 300 years ago. So um, uh, uh, America is younger than their families are in their residency here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Um, you have a whole chapter on the language of, of the mesquite. Uh, get into linguistics. What are you talking well, a little bit about if, that? if I had to get... Uh, another degree or, or go back and do my education again, I, I bet I'd do some combination of linguistics and folklore because so much of the key knowledge, the most distinctive knowledge that is unaccessible by other means uh, that pertains to mesquite is in indigenous languages and even in uh, Spanish dialects used in northern Mexico, the kind of things that Cormac McCarthy has had in his uh, novels and all the pretty horses and all that, this very detailed um, local knowledge of the environment is embedded in uh, languages, some of which, like the Siri language, can be considered endangered uh, because less than a thousand people in the entire world speak it. So I had the good benefit of being with practitioners who would explain to me the terms and their their significance and um, that's been a 40-year uh, pursuit of, of apprenticing myself to these really knowledgeable uh, masters of plant lore there, there is a very strong link uh, I think always right between language and culture um, and I've noticed, uh, um, I have some knowledge of Spanish and, and friends from various areas in Latin America. I've noticed that, uh, they, they get into arguments over what they, what, what they call certain foods, you know, friendly arguments. Um, that's very local, the, the, the food lore, the food language. Well, once I almost saw two, uh, people, one from Spain and one from Mexico get into a fight over the, um, the <laughs> sequence of ingredients that you put into a paella. I mean, it wasn't just the ingredients, it was the sequence within which you added them to the, to the um, uh, uh, bowl or pot. And so uh, people don't take these things lightly, and because of that, they're great, 
coaches and mentors. Yeah, it, it, it's high stakes, really, in a certain way, isn't it? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. But it's part of people's identity. You know, it's, it's not like uh, you pull down a recipe from a website and at Presto you have something pop out of your microwave. People spend, uh, you know, hours and days on, on things like harvesting mesca- uh, mesquite pods, roasting them over coals or roasting them in a, in a tumbler or chili roaster, drying them out grinding them, sifting them. And so when you finally use a product that you already have hours invested in, you don't take it lightly. In fact, in this book, you have some mesquite recipes. I do, and uh, that's always a joke among my family who would, whenever I prepared something new, they'd always let me taste it first to see if I was going to die at the table before they tried it. (laughs) But I I fortunately have some really good uh, uh, chefs, uh, friends, including a, a young lady, uh, Deja Walker in Flagstaff, who's sort of like an adopted daughter of mine. And she goes through each recipe and tightens them up and, and uh, kitchen tests them. So I don't think anyone will die from the recipes mm. in the book. <laughs> <laughs> good news, good news. They're certified. Um, uh, one of the reviewers um, uh, mentioned um, that you conclude with the, the recipes, quoting here, some quite labor-intensive, maybe a... <laughs> Maybe a complaint that some might have? <laughs> I love have. that, actually, because um, uh, I, I have no defense against that. I think it's worth doing these, these stages, but it's no more uh, labor-intensive than um, making a pumpkin pie from scratch or making a mole sauce or, or um, sort of doing your own stuffing uh, in a, in a turkey that you prepare for Thanksgiving. So these are special event recipes, uh, some of which echo the way foods have been eaten for thousands of years. So, so I think they're, they're real treats for people once they try them because it gives them a sense of history to savor, not just a, a, a sense of uh, uh, great flavor. And if you contrast that to what a lot of us do, which is, you know, fast, we want it quick, take it out of the package, put it in the microwave, what uh, what would you say to, about that contrast? What do we lose? Well, I mean, we, we lose a little bit of our connection uh, to food and our gratitude for all the hands that have participated in doing the work that we don't do when we're in a rush. And believe me, I'm not a a local food or native food uh, Nazi. I import food from uh, Lebanon, bring back packets of their spice mixtures and all of that, and and cook as much uh, Arab food as I do Southwestern native food. But I think now and then to slow down and uh, do something that's uh, a little bit more time-intensive is satisfying. It's it's just like uh, people who... um, uh, throw their own pottery and 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 uh, bake it in a in an oven or um, or design their own patio. Uh, of course, you could have someone come in and ha- have a patio done on the back of your house in three hours if you wanted to. But there's a satisfaction from this, and and it's not for everyone. And certainly, I don't do it every day and expect uh, people who 
try the recipes to make them every day, but it's it's really deeply satisfying because it connects us to place, it connects us to history, connects us to other cultures, and of course connects us to the theme of this book, which is arboreality, the reality of, of trees, that it helps us have empathy for other organisms on this planet. Uh, just another question on this book, and then I, I want to take a break and, and uh, talk about an, uh, another book that you have coming out, a uh, very important book. It's called uh, Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our... Uh, 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 I guess we have a misprint here, Healing Us in Our Communities. Um, so uh, I want to talk about that book. But uh, your protagonist at the beginning of this book, talking about arboreality, arboreality um, says, let's see, um, there's a very real possibility that some tree can become a beacon for each of us, a luminous life to guide us on our, onward way, on our wayward ways. It can shine a light on how we should live our lives. A, a big goal that is the ultimate goal in ways. I mean, so many of us uh, wander around uh, seeking answers to big questions where those answers may be at our doorstep if we go deeper. And by putting ourselves into the consciousness of another animal or plant or culture, I think it slows us down and sees the shows us that there's another way of perceiving the world that enriches us, that staying within our own skin and not imagining how other people or cultures or or plants or animals lead their lives impoverishes us. And when we, we get out of our own skin and imagine another way of living in this world, we're inevitably enriched by that, and I'm not the only one to do that dance. Many of the people you've interviewed over the years have probably had the same dance, but not so much dancing as a tree as dancing in other ways. So I think it's a wonderful exercise for all of us to do now and then. Mm, yeah. Uh, we're talking, if you just joined us, with Gary Paul Nepan. He is uh, author of many books, um, and uh, the latest is Mesquite, an arboreal love affair. Uh, I want to get into uh, talking about another book that uh, that Gary Paul Nepanik has coming out. Um, very interesting, important book for our times. It's called Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. And we'll uh, have a conversation about that after this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Intermountain Healthcare, a not-for-profit healthcare system with 23 hospitals and 170 medical clinics located throughout the Intermountain West. Intermountain Healthcare also offers managed care under the insurance brand Select Health. Information at intermountainhealthcare.org. Did you know that students perform better when their education is connected to their culture? Researchers have found that material is learned more easily and retained longer when it relates to aspects of a student's cultural heritage. In southern Utah, these findings are being implemented with Native American youth to help students learn engineering, math, and science principles. The projects that have been developed combine hands-on learning experiences with intergenerational learning, giving students an opportunity to work with their parents and grandparents. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. 
committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest is Gary Paul Napan. Uh, he's the author of many books, and uh, the latest is Mesquite, an arboreal love affair. We talked about that book in the first half of the program. I want to get into talking about another book that's coming out at the end of September. The title is Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. just want to read a description of the book. America has never felt more divided, but in the midst of all the acrimony comes one of the most promising movements in our country's history. People of all races, faiths, and political persuasions are coming together to restore America's natural wealth, its ability to produce healthy foods. In Food from the Radical Center, Gary Paul Napan tells these stories of diverse communities who are getting their hands dirty, bringing back North America's unique fare, bison, sturgeon, camas lilies, ancient grains, turkeys, and more. These efforts have united people from the left and right, rural and urban, faith-based and science-based, in game-changing uh, collaborations. Uh, so, Gary Paul Napan, uh, interesting, um, very timely goal. What uh, you, you um, well, what it, what was your goal with this book? Well. I had been grieving that we see such deep chasms uh, in our communities, especially in the West, where uh, some people who've been living next to one another for years or decades don't even talk to one another now and then because they feel divided by uh, their beliefs in faith or science. Uh, They feel divided by uh, uh, skin color or by uh, class and yet, uh, I'm sure you feel this way some days in Utah, as I do in Arizona. You can't help but bump into someone with a different worldview than yours, and they can enrich our lives just as much as mesquite trees and, and, uh, and uh, wildlife uh, can, and that we really, I think the most important job we can do as Americans today is to bridge those gaps by um, getting in the trenches together, getting our hands dirty, and working to um, heal the landscape that nurtures us, whether it's a a rangeland or an orchard or a a trout stream or um, a a forest with uh, pinion nuts. When we work together, with people who have ideologies different than ours, we find common ground that we wouldn't if we just um, listen to the pundits on uh, TV who are almost paid to divide us. And so I feel great solace whenever I go out into the rural communities of Arizona where I might be working with uh, old hippies and conservative ranchers on the same day, trying to heal the uh, erosion cuts in an arroyo and bring water back into our, our uh, streams and lakes. And that, I think, is the essential work that we have uh, in front of us, or we will be what the Bible and Abraham Lincoln warned, warned us against, a house divided. So uh, when you talk to the aging hippies and the conservative ranchers, did, are they talking to each other? 
Well, that's a great thing. At farmers markets, uh, we can all see what I call the ideological horseshoe, that uh, on um, many issues, uh, uh, sports, religion, and politics, these folks might not want to talk with one another. But everyone who sells at a farmer's market, whether they're Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, uh, uh, immigrant or native, wants good, healthy food for their kids and feels that uh, the place we live in matters and our communities matter. And so uh, the ideological horseshoe is where um, old liberal hippies and and land-based conservatives are really coming together, nearly touching uh, because they both care so deeply about having healthy foods and ha- healthy landscapes within which to live. On your website, which is, by the way, GaryNebhan.com, um, you talk a little bit about, um, I wonder if you could recount this, you you, you said you uh, talked to an apple grower um, and uh, who said he likes to sell, uh, he would love to sell heirloom um, you know, varieties, but uh, he has to sell what, uh, what sells, right? And then you talk to right. somebody That's in right. New Orleans, I think. If, uh, people don't eat it, he can't save it because he needs to make a living as a farmer. And I think that's one of the things that, that, um, uh, environmentalists, um, need to understand that most rural people who may be a bit more conservative than to them, are really concerned about livelihoods, not only for themselves, but for their kids and grandkids, so that they can stay in their landscape. And if we create those, uh, uh, that continuity in communities by creating jobs or reinforcing jobs where, where someone is putting food diversity on our table, everyone wins. Uh, we have a more stable human community in which to live, a more stable environment, which people care about because they know it well, and uh, uh, creating livelihoods with livable wages in our community is what a lot of people who vote very conservatively most want. We need to get over the the false assumption that uh, protecting the environment always means that a community loses jobs. In our community in Patagonia, over 75 jobs have been created in the last uh, six years uh, with something that we call Borderlands Restoration Network, and about 130 high school kids have gotten money for their college education um, by working in the summer uh, with older ranchers and farmers uh, doing uh, planting windbreaks and and uh, creating water harvesting surfaces that bring more irrigation to their crops and and planting pollinator gardens that increase the uh, yields of uh, fruit orchards. So we find some common ground rather than assuming that our values are diametrically opposed to one another. Do you think we, you, you know, you're, you're on the ground, you talk to people, do you think we're... I guess this is me searching for some hope. Or do we think we're more united than than it appears in the media? Because you you made a passing comment, which I think is very true. You know, a lot of people in the media are 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 paid to to divide. That's what sells. And that's right. That's why I love uh, your program and others like it, where you really listen and bring on 
people that, I mean, sometimes I think my job is to listen to views other than my own. And I really think we have to have that as a cultural practice again. And in some cases, that's what uh, different uh, congregations or, or community clubs do. You, you bring people of different uh, professions together, and they find common ground to each other. Uh, people of the Christian faith often talk about coming together at a common table and for a moment at least each week we put aside our differences and we emphasize our shared values and so I don't want to get political or religious on on anyone who feels uncomfortable with that but I think this is a common human instinct that that we need places where we can practice that kind of communal spirit and and frankly I have to say I have a an incredible respect for the rural Mormon communities that I've worked in around Capitol Reef and and Moab and Monticello that still have that uh, uh, common interest in their their land and their uh, town and their community. And I've learned a lot from people in Utah about this. It, it's not restricted to indigenous people or or uh, Hispanic communities at all. It's there's many different uh, ways that communities have found uh, practices that bring people together rather than emphasizing our differences. I'd like to have you expand on that. Community, of course, is very important, and uh, some communities stronger than others. I guess those communities have found ways or have continued the practices which, which, uh, which bind them together. That's right, and uh, to some extent, because how fast we move these days, a uh, portion of our uh, of our population doesn't get to participate and reap the benefits of that community building as much. And I think where the environmental movement perhaps went wrong at some point is that it became sort of fixated with top-down regulation uh, to protect species and habitats rather than voluntary collaborative community-based actions. And so if there's a methodology in this book that I've learned from, because I made mistakes like any other environmental scientist early on in my career, and of course I continue to make mistakes, but there's a, there's a practice of how we bring communities together so that they are true participants in landscape restoration and the recovery of food species. And those principles are pretty common sense things that we tend to forget or ignore, but they can make or break whether a conservation action actually gets paid dirt. Can that divide uh, actually be bridged? I, I sometimes despair. The, the you know the the, the the conservatives who believe in uh, you know voluntary practices and the liberals who believe in the top down regulation. Well. I'll just give you an example from uh, my community. There's a wonderful rancher here, Joe Caroga, that I write about in the book, who I knew 30 years ago when I lived in this county as a kid. I always respected him. I mean, he, he was really a great observer of the natural resources in our county, but he was more than that. He was a kind man. And he has bumper stickers on the back of his pickup truck that probably alienate some uh, uh, environmentalist pro-mining and pro-ranching um, uh, bumper stickers. And yet, from age 60 to age 75, after 
his other duties were done each day, he built 2,000 rock check dams by hand that have now brought streams back a uh, uh, half mile to a mile of flowing water over places that had been dewatered over the previous century. And when we gave him the Earth Day Environmentalist of the Year Award in our county, the Society for Range Management, the churches, the, the environmental groups, the schools were all there to honor him. And he sort of grumbled and said, I never thought I'd uh, be getting an award from a Goldern environmentalist group, but <laughs> now I see it's all my friends. <laughs> and and so the point is that he really is a model for what we can do. He walks the talk. He, he, when we asked him why he put that much effort into building 2,000 check dams on his own, he said, because the land needed it. And I don't think there was a dry eye in that place. He was just so downright honest and humble about what he had done. And I wish all of us who call ourselves environmentalists um, can do the kind of tangible work during our lifetimes that Joe has already accomplished. And so having empathy for someone like Joe, regardless of the bumper stickers on the back of his truck, is where we need to be. It's that we all have to walk in toward the middle, towards this radical center where we're hearing each other at last. Let's take another break. We'll come back and uh, have our final segment with Gary Paul Nepan, author of uh, many books. Um, and uh, the latest are uh, titled Mesquite, an arboreal love affair. We talked about that earlier in the program. We're talking now about food from the radical center, healing our land and communities. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art and UPR Sculpture Walk, Tuesday, July 16th and 30th, 9 to 10.30 a.m., led by the NEMA Education Team, introducing five to six different pieces on the USU campus. Details at artmuseum.usu.edu or at 435-797-7239 and Sundance Institute's summer film series returns for its 22nd season. This year's lineup of summer movie nights has new films, old favorites, and a chance for the audience to pick which film will be shown at the August 21st screening. Details at sundance.org Utah. Utah Public Radio would like to thank Community Nursing Services for becoming one of our newest sponsors. For more information on how you can become a sponsor, email debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to download our UPR app so you can listen anywhere. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. If you've just joined us, we are talking with Gary Paul Nepan. He's an agricultural ecologist, ethnobotanist, and author of many books. His work is focused primarily on the interaction of biodiversity and culture diversity in the arid uh, southwest. He's considered a pioneer in the local food movement and the heirloom seed-saving movement. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, just follow up with something you said, very interesting. You said you feel like sometimes your job is listening. And that's a skill, I don't know, there's a culture perhaps we're, we're losing. We need, to, we need to restore that. I wonder what you would say, how to be an effective listener. Well, I hear, hear what you're saying in the sense that it's a skill that somehow you'd think would be innate to human endeavors. 
but we get barraged with so much information, and now that information can be so siloed where we just hear uh, stuff that reinforces our own world view. And I think um, having to spend time in different cultures where I was literally learning their language, but also learning their ethics and sensibilities, gradually taught me how to be a deeper listener. I couldn't assume that um, what I thought was scientifically accurate um, was um, something that they sensed was happening in their immediate environment. They would have a metaphorical language that used words unlike what I had been trained to use, and yet after a while I realized they were making completely valid observations that had a lot of um, not just scientific veracity, but common sense in the in the manner that it could help us take better care of the environment. And so, listening to people who speak differently than you use a different uh, cadence and vocabulary, and have um, values and, and ethics embedded in the way they speak is something that we all need to practice more so that we see that the distance between the other and ourselves is not that great. We just have a couple of minutes. Um, you say in this book that uh, this is a new food movement, uh, which you dub as a conservation you can taste. I wonder, maybe an illustration. Could you tell us a, a story of just a couple of minutes we have? Well, well let me just... Uh, tell you a, a remarkable thing that I heard Carlo Petrini, the founder of the Slow Food Movement, say to a bunch of American fundraisers one time. He said, you know, you are, you are the only country in the world that wants to save something, protect it, and keep it away from people. And then you don't have any of the people who funded it or worked hard on the ground to protect it to have the sensual pleasures and delights of having conserved it. And he said, Italians save things so that the sensuality of their lives is enhanced. And so we don't think that saving and savoring something are diametrically opposed. And I just thought that was such an incredible insight that we need to have a conservation that we can taste, that we do hard work to recover the many endangered uh, fish and game species, heirloom seeds and heritage breeds, but then we celebrate that we've done that work to bring them back and recover their populations, and we celebrate by partaking of that food at the common table so that we honor everyone who's contributed to that. Just about a minute left. I want to just talk very briefly about this. This was uh, interesting. Uh, Tucson uh, was selected by UNESCO to be the first city of gastronomy in the U.S., yeah, I played a, a, a role among many people in getting that designation at a time when our city was suffering really low self-esteem after the 2008 recession, high unemployment, restaurants closing, and all of that. And yet we said, you know, Tucson has not just great food, but great farmers and ranchers all around us that are uh, bringing to the table a lot of foods that aren't even known in other parts of the country. And we need to celebrate that and see if that could 
revitalize our economy. And in fact, it has. We see an incredible rebound in our economy, uh, celebrating foods through festivals and, and other events and community gardens. And this is not just uh, elite restaurants, but this is really getting seeds of food crops and the foods themselves into the hands and mouths of the poorest people in our community. So Tucson has done a wonderful job of showing that this work matters to all classes and all peoples in the community. Well, we've been talking with Gary Paul Nepan. You can find him at his website, uh, GaryNepan.com. And a couple of books will be coming out, Mesquite, an Arboreal Love Affair, and Food from the Radical Center, Healing Our Land and Communities. Gary Paul Nepan, a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you for not just this opportunity, but for all you do for the communities within your uh, sound reach and, and uh, keep up such great work. It really matters at this point in time when our country is so divided to hear reassuring stories from a variety of voices. So thanks for your work. Well, thank, thank you to you as well. Appreciate that. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and Kane College of the Arts presents Fry Street Chamber Music Festival and USU Summer Piano Festival concerts July 15th, 16th, and 18th at 7.30 p.m., featuring Fry Street Quartet and Isola Olson Piano Duo. More information at cca.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.